Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Little bit disappointed, frankly. See, I found out recently that they are doing a new TV show based on the characters in The Sopranos. And at first I got kind of excited because I think there's some interesting things you could do with that. But then I found out they're just doing a prequel, so it's them when they're younger. And it's not even, like, younger enough that they're Sopranos babies, because I think that would be kind of interesting. It's just them when they're, like, I don't know, 20 or whatever. Which is fine, I guess. But I was hoping they would go with the Hanna-Barbera model of reusing TV show characters. Like how the Flintstones is the Honeymooners, but if they're caveman, and Huckleberry Hound is Andy Griffith if he was a dog, or Top Cat is the cast of Sergeant Bilko, but if they were alley cats, or how Yogi Bear was Art Carney, which is weird because Barney Rubble is also Art Carney. I wonder if anybody's ever done that meme with Yogi Bear and Art Carney and Barney Rubble all standing in an alley pointing at each other like in that Spider-Man cartoon. That'd be nice. So anyway, that would be one route you could go with the Sopranos. But if you're just going to redo them as cartoon animals, then you kind of end up with the good feathers, which is fine. But I wish they would go with the late 60s, early 70s Hanna-Barbera model of recycling popular TV characters, where they follow the Scooby-Doo, Jabberjaws, Speed Buggy, Funky Phantom, etc. template, where they put the characters in a band and have them solve mysteries alongside a magical creature with the voice of a popular comedian. Now, you need to tweak it a little bit for modern times, because in the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of young people were starting bands, and that was a cool, hip thing to do. I don't think that's as much the case anymore. So instead of being in a rock and roll band, I think the Sopranos, or because it's stand-ins for the Sopranos, let's call them the falsettos, should probably be SoundCloud rappers who are solving mysteries with the aid of a talking sandwich who is also their producer, voiced by Tignataro. So that's my pitch for the falsettos. Hit me up, Hanna-Barbera. I can just see the dramatic conclusion of an episode now. Oh, my plan to dress up like a chupacabra and take over the Bertolucci crime family was perfect. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling Italian SoundCloud rappers and your talking sandwich producer with a caustic deadpan humor. Moo! So, yeah, you know, either that or they're Wild West Prairie Dogs and Emo Phillips is their drummer. Anyway, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Eric Engelhard. Six-fingered hands hold my interest. Whiny super tweens make me grimace. Till Danny Chase leaves due to sepsis. Make mine marvel with this synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Eric. Defenders 101. By which I mean it's the 101st issue of the Defenders. Not that this is an AP introductory course on the Defenders. For that, you should probably start with an earlier episode. November 
1981. Renewal. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Drotted by Don Perlin. Inkted by Joe Sinnott and Al Milgram. Lettered by Shelley Lefferman. Colored by George Rousos. And edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. The Incredible Hulk. The Submariner. Doctor Strange. The Silver Surfer. Valkyrie. Nighthawk. Clea. Hellcat. Gargoyle. And Devil Slayer. Previously in the Defenders. A titular non-team finally concluded a pair of protracted conflicts, first with a sextet of minor demons named the Six-Fingered Hand, then with the perfidious Palms Puppet Masters, a fiendish foursome of the Marvel Universe's stand-ins for the devil that I like to call the League of Substitute Satans. During the course of these demonic Donnybrooks, the Defenders gained a new member, Gargoyle, a.k.a. Isaac Christians an octogenarian dabbler in the dark arts who was left trapped in a grotesque but powerful body after an ill-advised Faustian bargain. They were also reunited with old allies, Son of Satan, Namor, the Silver Surfer, and Devil Slayer, a.k.a. Eric Simon Payne, a Vietnam vet and recovering alcoholic who got a magic cape when he accidentally joined an evil cult whose dogma was loosely based on Blue Oyster Cult song lyrics. But despite this expanded roster, these battles took a harsh toll on our put-upon protagonists. Nighthawk, a.k.a. Kyle Richmond, was stricken by a mystical assault, and while at night the billionaire do well bird enthusiast was still as strong as two strong men, he was now paralyzed during daylight hours. Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat, was possessed by demonic forces and learned that her recently deceased mother Dorothy had attempted to prolong her own life by selling her daughter's soul. Nor was that the extent of Patsy's parent problems. Satan himself claimed that he was the cat-costumed crime fighter's biological father. The Prince of Darkness later admitted that there was a pretty good chance he was lying about being Patsy's dad, as lying was the sort of thing for which he was rather well known. Hellcat was not the only person of potentially perfidious parentage who came out the worse for wear from the Defender's skirmish with the Satan squad. When devil dadded do-gooder Damon Hellstrom, a.k.a. Son of Satan, faced his father in a final confrontation, Doctor Strange and the rest of the gang channeled all their mystical might into their infernally ancestored ally. The only problem was, since Damon's powers were demonic in origin, the stronger he got, the eviler he became. Unfortunately, even at full strength, and therefore full evil, Damon was still no match for his diabolical dad, but his inadvertent evilification had an unexpected result. Once Damon was all eviled up, Satan liked him more and decided not to kill him after all. Instead, the proud pernicious papa packed up his newly nefarious son and fucked off back to hell, informing the defenders that he and his Beelzebubian buddies would leave the earth alone for the time being. Gadzooks! What will Patsy do to cheer herself up after this emotionally fraught adventure? How long will the Defenders' ranks remain at a robust ten-hero roster? And how will Devil Slayer console himself after confronting four the Devils and killing zero of them? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... She visits the pediatric cancer ward of a hospital. About two pages and by violently attacking a hippie. The defenders are hanging around the Sanctum Sanctimonious and moping about how bad they suck. Hulk has had enough of their shit, and is like, 
You guys suck. Patsy is like, duh, what do you think we're moping about? Hulk is like, no, you suck because you're moping. We chased the devil and the devil's friends, the devil, the devil, and the devil, off of the earth. We should party. Patsy is like, shut up the Hulk. Nobody wants to party. We fucked up so bad. We turned Damon Hellstrom evil and made him go live with his dad, who it turns out is maybe but probably not my dad. And the worst part is, the Smiths won't come out with their first album for nearly two years, so there isn't even an appropriate soundtrack to accompany how hard I want to mope. Hulk is like, one, stop yelling at Hulk. B, Cure and Joy Division have collectively released five albums by now. Patsy is like, shit, you're right, the Hulk. Sorry I yelled at you. Hulk is like, apology not accepted. You used to be fun, but now you suck. Time for Hulk to angrily leap away and quit the Defenders again. And with that, the Hulk angrily leaps away and quits the Defenders again. Bye, the Hulk. Namor is like, hmm. The Hulk does raise a good point. You guys do kind of suck. I never did much care for moping. I mean, why mope when you can brood darkly? Yeah, I'll be in Atlantis doing that if you guys need me. Imperious Rex! And with that, the Prince of Abslantis fucks off back to his undersea kingdom. Bye, Namor! Nighthawk is like, Hey, you know how I've mentioned about eight or nine times in the past ten issues that I'm gonna quit the team on account of I'm paralyzed during the day now? Well, that. And with that, Kyle has his nurse Luann wheel him out to his limo and take him home. Bye, Kyle! Valkyrie is like, Well, Devil Slayer, you'll probably want to get going now too, huh? I mean, there's no more devils around for you to not slay, so... Eric is like, No, my ex-wife Cory won't take me back, so I figured I'd just hang out with you losers indefinitely. Wow. Way to take a hint, Eric. Silver Surfer is like, Man, I haven't seen self-pity like this since that one time I glanced upward at one of my own thought bubbles. Steve, you're a pretty big fan of you. How about you give us a little self-aggrandizing soliloquy and show these sulking Susans how self-confidence is done? Steve is like, No, my shiny friend, I don't think I can do that. You see, when I eviled up Damon and condemned him to a lifetime in hell, I'm beginning to think that that may have been a mistake. It was my first, and I must say I don't care for it. After all, if I am capable of erring, what hope is there for the rest of humanity? I was the best of us. Silver Surfer is like, Okay, I meant something self-aggrandizing instead of moping. N not to do both. Guess I should have clarified. That's on me. But cut yourself some slack. Sure, you fucked up and almost doomed the planet, but who cares? Do you know how many planets I've helped destroy? I mean, I don't have an exact number, but it's like a lot. And most of them were way nicer than this one. So cheer up. When Gargoyle hears this, he's like, I know I may just be an elderly World War I veteran and practitioner of the dark arts who made an ill-fated bargain with a minor demon to bring economic prosperity to his beloved hometown, and as a result is trapped in the body of a hideous gargoyle. And as part of that bargain, I might have kidnapped Patsy and nearly killed her long-suffering housekeeper, Dolly Donahue, as I destroyed her house. But I think this chrome-plated alien fellow is right. 
Let's stop lollygagging around this here sanctum and go cheer ourselves up by doing some good deeds. Preferably the kind that don't involve making pacts with demons. Patsy is like, Thanks, Isaac, and to a lesser extent the Silver Surfer. I needed to hear that. Come on, Valkyrie and Isaac, let's go visit Dolly in the hospital. Oh, and Eric, here's that magic cape I stole from you a couple issues back when I was possessed by the devil and also thought he was my dad. Sorry about that. Devil Slayer's like, Don't worry about it. We've all been there. Val, Patsy, and Isaac head down to the bus stop. In a move that would suggest that, unlike Patsy, he is very aware of the Cure's discography, Eric goes for a stroll in the pouring rain to ponder his lot in life. Steve and Clea still seem pretty bummed, so the Silver Surfer is like, Come on, guys, hop on my cosmic surfboard. It's time for a road trip! And off they go. Devil Slayer isn't very far into his sulky sojourn when a businessman starts looking at him funny. The businessman is like, Hey, why are you wearing a bodysuit with a floopy magic cape? The aspirationally named adventurer realizes that he has forgotten to use his low-grade telepathy to disguise the fact that he is dressed in an outlandish manner. He concentrates real hard and rectifies the situation. A few blocks later, he runs into a destitute hippie who is singing a terrible song. The hippie looks at him, startled, and is like, Hey, why are you wearing a bodysuit with a floopy magic cape? Devil Slayer is like, the only possible explanation for you seeing through my disguise is that you are a devil. Therefore, as my name implies, I will slay you. Damn it, Eric! He starts chasing the confused hippie down so that he can murder him. The hippie trips over his guitar case and face plants on the sidewalk. Eric picks him up by the scruff of his neck and is about to kill him, but the hippie's like, What the fuck, man? Please don't hurt me! Something in the frightened hippie's tone finally gets through to Eric. The bloodthirsty former cult member is like, Oh, um, sorry. This is awkward, but I thought you were the devil. Or, or at least a devil. My bad. Sheesh, Eric. Song wasn't that bad. I mean, it was close, but still. If you're gonna start murdering every hippie who sings terrible songs, when are you gonna find the time to not slay devils? Meanwhile, on the bus ride to the hospital, Patsy tells Valkyrie how much she loves her and values their friendship. It's nice. A little kid comments on the fact that Gargoyle is wearing the universal impenetrable disguise of a fedora and trench coat and asks him why he's dressed like a spy. Isaac declines to answer. Which, in the kid's defense, is exactly what a spy would do. When they arrive at the hospital, the trio of defenders is surprised to learn that not only is Dolly up and about, she has recuperated enough that she has been volunteering in the children's ward and is currently reading to sick children. The gang heads down to see her. Dolly is super stoked to see Val and Patsy. Gargoyle's a little sheepish on account of the last time he saw Dolly. He was throwing a fireball at her, which caused a house to collapse onto the harried housekeeper and nearly killed her. For some reason, Ike figures she might not be thrilled to see him. Fortunately, the gang soon learns that Dolly remembers nothing of the night she was hurt and believes that she sustained her injuries in an accidental house fire. Diplomatically, her visitors choose not to disabuse Dolly of this convenient fiction. As Patsy is introducing Isaac to Dolly, a little kid comes up and tugs off the scarf that had been concealing the gargoyle's monstrous visage. The elderly adventurer is aghast and steals himself for a horrified reaction from Dolly and the children. 
but none is forthcoming. Ms. Donahue has long been familiar with the unconventional circles Patsy runs in, and the children think that Ike's unique appearance is pretty rad. Good for them. Isaac is super relieved and starts hamming it up for the kids, but Patsy has a relapse of the mopes and sneaks off to find a corner to cry in. She's been sobbing for a few minutes when an adorable little bald girl in a fancy yellow dress rolls up on her and is like, Hi, my name's Serena. Why are you crying? Patsy is about to explain about her mom selling her soul to demons and finding out that the devil might be her dad and that this guy who she was kind of flirting with might be her brother and has just moved to hell, but then she thinks better of it and just kind of shrugs. Probably the right call. This kid's still probably a few years from picking up a V.C. Andrews book and learning about all that flowers in the attic shit. Serena goes on to console Patsy and explain that she has cancer and that chemotherapy has made her hair fall out, but she still manages to maintain an overwhelmingly positive attitude because the world is a magical place and as long as you're nice to everyone, nothing bad will ever happen to you, so maybe Patsy should just suck it up and be happy already. Patsy decides to suck it up and be happy already. Fair enough. Meanwhile, the Silver Surfer is leading Steve and Clea to a village in Africa. Where in Africa? Oh, just Africa. Hmm, this does not bode well. When they get there, the villagers are super stoked to see the Silver Surfer and greet him and his passengers warmly. The Surfer explains that a few months ago, he was all pissed off and kept ramming headfirst into the invisible barrier that keeps him from leaving the planet. Eventually, he got tired of that and started zooming around the world looking for places where the people didn't suck. This village is the place where people seemed to suck the least. Everyone here was super nice to him, and that restored his faith in humanity. Since Steve and Clea seemed bummed out, he figured hanging out here a while might cheer them up. The villagers treat the visitors like honored guests and have a big feast in their honor. Later that evening, there's a huge ceremony. At first, Steve watches with polite disinterest. But as the ceremony continues, he begins to sense that powerful magic is being summoned. The supercilious sorcerer is astounded that such, quote, simple, unquote, people could be capable of performing such magic. But eventually he concludes that they must have just been so attuned to nature that they instinctively did magic that, quote, most mystics, unquote, would have had to study a really long time to learn. Really, Steve? I mean, it's a ceremony. Seems kind of wild to jump right to, they must have been born knowing how to perform this ritual and ceremony, rather than thinking that maybe, just maybe, they had to study to learn it the way that most mystics would. Fucking Steve. Anyway, Steve and Clea get caught up in the magic of the moment and dance around in the sky and do some makeouts, which frankly seems rude and like it would probably fuck up the ritual the villagers were performing, or at the very least would be recentering this traditional ceremony onto the uninvited guests who are observing it, but either nobody minds or they're too polite to say anything. When Steve and Clea are done with their aerial makeouts, they and the surfer start heading home. Along the way, the Silver Surfer shares his philosophy that deep down, humanity isn't so shitty after all, because there are some nice villages, and babies, and flutes, and statues of Buddha and stuff. Okay? While his reflective space friend is waxing philosophical about the importance of flute appreciation, 
Devil Slayer has decided to make amends with the hippie he attacked earlier by following him home. The hippie, who it turns out is named Ira Sunshine Gross, is like, uh, you don't have to keep following me around, you know. But Eric is insistent and keeps saying stuff like, I promise not to hurt you. For some reason, this does little to put Sunshine at ease. Go figure. When they arrive at Sunshine's pad, it turns out to be a real shithole. Eric is like, Good lord, what a shithole! Jesus, Eric! You attack a guy for no reason, then follow him home and invite yourself up to his pad. Seems like the least you could do is try to be polite. Sunshine, though, doesn't seem to be too off-put by Eric's outburst. He's like, Yeah, I guess I don't do too much entertaining these days. Oh, hey, where are my manners? Can I offer you some drugs? I have hash, acid... Or if you prefer, I could hook you up with some heroin. Devil Slayer is like, Drugs? I'll fucking kill you! And advances with clenched fists towards the cowering hippie. Sunshine is like, What the fuck, dude? You literally just said, apropos of nothing, that you weren't going to hurt me. Besides, it isn't my fault I do drugs. I liked the 60s, and it isn't the 60s anymore. All my friends got haircuts and stuff and don't want to listen to my shitty songs anymore. What am I supposed to do? Not do drugs? Eric starts to calm down and is like, Hmm, I too don't really know what I'm doing with my life, and nobody likes me either. I guess I got so wrapped up in being Devil Slayer, I forgot to find out who Eric is. Sunshine, you've given me a lot to think about. I'll be back later. Oh, and I promise not to hurt you. After giving this little speech, Devil Slayer stalks out of the apartment, leaving a confused and frightened Sunshine in his wake. Eric heads back towards the Sanctum Sanctimonious. When he arrives at the Greenwich Village Brownstone, it's nearly 5 a.m. The ill-mannered aspirational Satan murderer is surprised to find his fellow defenders sitting outside on the steps. He asks what they're doing, and Steve is like, Just living, man. We met some very nice props. I mean people, who inspired us in various ways. Eric is like, You know what? Me too. Say, where are these people? Steve is like, Oh, now that they've inspired us, their work is done. Uh, want to watch the sunrise with us? Devil Slayer is like, Yeah, I think I would. The End And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. It is a balmy, I don't know, 98 degrees in this room. Oh, geez. And frankly, I, I mean, we ain't seen nothing yet either. I talked about it in the intro to the last show, but this weekend is scheduled to be... I think on Sunday, they're now saying 113 degrees. Editor Hub here in the future, it actually got up to 117. Whoa. Yeah. Do you have any plans to beat the heat tomorrow? I am actually, ironically, going to be baking some cupcakes, but it's at a friend's house that has a pretty solid air conditioning setup, so... Think the two should balance out to just be normally hot? I don't know. Well, I think as long as you're ironically baking the cupcakes, you should be fine. If you were doing it sincerely, I think you might be in some trouble. 
Yep. We have a older window unit air conditioner in our bedroom. And so I think our vague plan is to just hide out in that room for the weekend. And failing that, if I get really bored, I was thinking I might try to fight the Predator. Oh, that's true. This is going to be Predator weekend if we ever do have one in Portland. I mean, my house is pretty consistently staying about 10 degrees lower than it is outside. So that would put the indoor temperature at around 98.6. So Mm -hmm. the Predator won't be able to see me with his heat vision. I'll be able to sneak up on him and attack him. Oh, man. He's pretty tall, as I remember. So watch out for that. Yeah, and he's got knives for hands and like a bazillion guns. But um, yeah, I'm pretty sneaky, Corey. Mm hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I've been doing some push-ups, so I think it'll go okay. Oh, maybe if you wear like one of those mesh muscle shirts, I think that's what he's got, right? <laughs> He'll be like, hey, my brother. Corey, that's how you fight the commando, not the predator. Oh, I thought the predator also had one of those. No, no, you're thinking of the guy who looks like Freddie Mercury who's in commando. And it didn't help him too much because he's still got a steel pipe through his tummy. Well, yeah, a mesh shirt isn't going to help with that. Well, then I think I might forego them entirely in my combat with the Predator. Fair. Well, you want to talk about a comic book? Yeah, let's do that. Corey, what did you think about this comic book? So, there were elements of it that I appreciated, you know? Like, it was nice to see some team camaraderie or Mm -hmm. segments of it. And, you know, a sense that... After a team goes through something hard, you know, they've been drawn closer by that and that there can also be kind of a sense of relief or renewal as the title of the book goes. Mm -hmm. That said, it seemed really abrupt to me and I definitely had some trouble with some of the scenes in which the renewal took place. Yeah, I felt the same. There were definitely some things I liked about the issue and I like the idea of the issue. And there were parts of it that were really well done and that were nice to see. In general, some of my favorite storylines, certainly in the New Teen Titans and also in this title, have been smaller moments where they aren't fighting crime, where they're dealing with each other as human beings. And ostensibly, that's what this issue is. It's a slice-of-life drama. How do they deal with the aftermath of this huge battle when they're all kind of down in the dumps? That being said, I don't know. My main issue was... The portrayal of life in Africa came across as incredibly condescending and problematic in a lot of ways. That bugged the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. And there were just some other things about it that the execution of just seemed a little bit off. Yeah, I had a few points in my notes about the kind of noble savage thing, but, you know, as applied to Africa, being really condescending and screwed up. Oh, look, these simple people, you know are so simple and happy that, like, magic exists for them and they don't have any care in the world just because they're simple. Yeah, it starts off with this thing like, oh, things in Africa have advanced a lot. They're pretty different than they were in Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. You know, a lot of people have misconceptions about it. And then here is a loving and unexamined portrayal of many of those misconceptions. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it came across as, like, super condescending and shitty. I mean, I guess the plus side is that the Silver Surfer is no longer being a pre-Boaz anthropologist and trying to go around, quote, civilizing, unquote, indigenous peoples 
with his technology, which I guess is good. He seems to have dropped some of the silver man's burden aspects of his character, <laughs> uh -huh. but it still came off as shitty. And Steve certainly wasn't helping things. Like he literally calls them a simple people. Mm -hmm. I'm like, that sucks, dude. Mm -hmm. Why mystics and yogis could study for years and not know this. I was like, how the fuck do you know these people haven't studied for years? It seems like this is information that has been, even in the context of this book, passed down from generation to generation. It is the result of study. Mm -hmm. Like, they have learned magic just like you have learned magic. Stop calling them simple. Yeah, very frustrating. And it's a bummer, too, because there was so much potential or there was potential for that not to be so awful, and it could have been interesting. It could have been, I don't know. I saw problems coming as soon as it sets it up that this takes place in the country of Africa. It doesn't say country, does it? No, but it just says, like, in Africa. Like, well, that pinpoints it down. Yeah, no, as soon as you see that, in a, I don't know if it's just a Defenders comic, but I think any comic of this era, <laughs> you're like, oh boy, here we mm -hmm. go. Anytime you're any place else, it like pinpoints what city in what state you are in. But if you are in Africa, you're just in Africa. How big can it be? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wasn't crazy about that part. Mm -hmm. How did you feel about the other characters' renewals? Yeah, I was just going to ask you about the hospital scene where, you know, I read through it a couple times and I, I don't think there's anything like morally wrong with it that I could detect, but something about it was kind of just off-putting. Do you mean Patsy's interaction with Serena? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, I don't know, I'm probably using the phrase wrong, but there's the idea of, like, inspiration porn, you know, where it's just exploiting people who are going through horrible things and being like, well, aren't they brave and aren't they good? The idea that this little girl who is suffering from cancer exists to show the protagonist a better attitude. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what it is that I exactly object to about it, but it just seemed off and kind of shitty in, in a sort of indefinable way. It didn't make me like Patsy any better, that it was using this, this girl who is going through all of this trauma to not really focus on her story, but to highlight a different character's story, to make her feel better about herself, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the kid is definitely a device in that sense. And I don't know, maybe part of it, too, is the way she's drawn. She looks kind of like it's not quite like those are those Victorian paintings where the kids look like they don't know how to draw kids. I mean, I think that's Victorian. That's also Renaissance is the one that I usually think of. But it's in both of those. But specifically, the way that she is dressed combined with the way that she is drawn, I didn't feel good about it, but my immediate thought was the comic strip Zippy the Pinhead. Oh no, the dress thing, like that frock. Yeah, the frock and the shaved head and that she has a very tiny kind of pointy head. It was like, oh, I don't think that's what they're going for. I am uncomfortable with this. Oh man, yeah, now I can't unsee that. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I think the thing about it too that was so weird for me was like all the stuff that you said but then on top of it, this kid's like absolute belief that the whole world is a special magic place and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Nothing bad can happen to you if you believe that as long as you're nice to everybody. Yeah. And it's like the Defenders just went through this whole thing that was like kind of the opposite of that. Yeah. 
it seems like this girl is supposed to be shown as having like this wisdom that she just knows these things. Like, I'm not worried because God won't let me die because I'm nice to people. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, ooh, I hope you are getting some solace out of that idea. But also, that is a rough idea. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of a reductivist Western approach to the idea of karma, where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. But even putting that aside, if you're taking what she's saying at face value, she's just kind of talking shit about everyone who ever died because I guess they must not have been nice enough. Yeah, I think I guess what I didn't like about that page is it just sort of made me think <laughs> a lot <laughs> about my own mortality and, you know, the loss of people in my life and all of that. And maybe that was what kind of rubbed me wrong about it. Yeah, there's what I sometimes think of as the Walker Texas Ranger principle. <laughs> where if you're going to tackle difficult subjects, you need to rise to a certain level of competence or else it's like, oh, no, you, I'm sorry, you don't get to tell this story. Oh, my gosh. I, you have clearly seen or remember more episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger than I do, which is I'm OK with that. That show took some big fucking swings and would just like. Be like, okay, here, we're going to tackle homelessness. And I was like, no, you're Walker, Texas Ranger. You don't get to do this. Oh, wow. Or the one where Haley Joel Osment has the moment where he turns to CB, the D minus Wilford Brimley, who's in that show, and says in an abrupt tone shift, Walker told me I have AIDS. Whoa. It is that kind of thing. And it's this is not that jarring. And I'm not saying that J.M. DeMatteis is not a writer who is good enough to tackle those things. It's just that this particular issue doesn't rise to that level of being good enough to deal with these things well. So I wish it wasn't dealing with them. Well, yeah, it's that thing of just the people that are there to make the pointer props. Yeah. I liked the other part of what was happening in the hospital. I liked the whole shit with Isaac. I think it was a huge mistake of Patsy to bring him along because she didn't yet know that Dolly had her memory wiped of him attacking her and putting her in the hospital, which makes it pretty clear that this visit was about her wanting to feel better, not about the person she was visiting, which I think plays into that narrative as well. But I liked Ike. I've been pretty harsh on the gargoyle character because I think he was introduced in a way where he doesn't come off great, but he's been slowly growing on me and I like his interaction with the kids. I like the kids' reaction to him where they're just like, oh man, that guy looks awesome. He's metal as fuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was cool. I thought that was fun. I especially liked the way the kid was interacting with them on the bus where he was like, hey man, why are you dressed like a secret agent? Mm -hmm. because he's got his like combination of the invisible man and the traditional fedora trench coat universal disguise. I thought that stuff was really fun. I'm glad to see that Dolly Donahue's feeling better. I liked Val's interaction with Patsy and them really spending some time to develop that friendship. I thought that stuff worked pretty well. What did you think of the Sunshine character? Man, I just felt bad for him. Devil Slayer is such a horrible jerk to him through the whole thing. He is so out of line. Yeah, I mean, Sunshine's character wasn't really 
I didn't feel all that remarkable. You know, he was just kind of an old hippie who was like stuck in his way of doing things. And I was fine with his choices, you know? Yeah, I mean, they're certainly not choices that I would make. His place is pretty crappy and heroin addiction is pretty rough. But other than that, it's weird. There is that idea of the character who just can't get out of the 60s, who can't deal with the fact that he's no longer living in that era. That was such a trope in the 80s. There was a character remarkably similar to Sunshine who showed up on The Golden Girls, who was played by Martin Mull. Really? I mean, he wasn't a heroin addict, but he was an agoraphobe who, like, his mind couldn't deal with the fact that it wasn't the peace and love era anymore. And so he just refused to leave his apartment and interact with the rest of the world. And then he met Dorothy and she kind of coaxed him out of his shell. And I gotta say, Devil Slayer is no Dorothy Spornak. Well, yeah, no shit. I didn't get the heroin addiction part of it. I just thought he was like on the regular drugs. I don't know that it's an addiction, but he's at least a casual user because he offers Devil Slayer the array of drugs that are at his disposal. Look, I got black hash, some good acid, smack that'll knock you for a loop. Oh shit, I didn't catch that part. Yeah. Now, that is, like I said, not a great lifestyle choice that he's making. Heroin fucking sucks, man. I have known people that it has done awful things to. Same. At the same time, Devil Slayer's reaction is freaking berserk. He goes from saying, I promise you I will never hurt you and my word is my bond. Okay, first of all, never trust anybody who says that. <laughs> That says, uh, word is bond, or that they will never hurt you? That they will never hurt you. Like, that is just such a huge red flag. <laughs> it's like, I'm not racist, but... <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, okay, so you are going to hurt me. And Devil Slayer makes good on that, in essence, within a few seconds. Like, he's like, man, your apartment fucking sucks. And I gotta say, yes, his apartment does fucking suck. He must be in some kind of a rent control situation if he's able to make rent on that place by busking, though. Mm -hmm. uh, especially because his song is fucking garbage. <laughs> we could get back to the song in a second, though, because I'm not done yelling at Devil Slayer for just being a rude and fucking violent, without provocation motherfucker. Now, I get the idea that drugs may be a trigger for him where he himself has battled addiction in the past. but. It is a completely inappropriate reaction that he basically is just like, I'll fucking kill you. His interactions with that guy up to that point are the guy sees him on the street, says, hey, nice cape. Devil Slayer's like, you're a fucking demon. I'm going to stab you to death and starts chasing him down. Mm -hmm. The guy understandably gets freaked out and trips over his guitar case and hits his head and then is like, okay, fuck it, I'm going home. And Devil Slayer's like, I'll come with you. The guy's like, uh, okay, I guess. Yeah, uh, you don't have to. He's like, no, 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 I'll never hurt you. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, do you want some drugs? Now, at this point, all he knows about the guy is that he has a penchant for violence, he dresses very flamboyantly, and in their first interaction, he said, you're a demon and I'm going to kill you. So I think him thinking maybe this guy likes drugs is not a huge stretch. Yeah, and I mean, if nothing else, it really seemed like he needed to <laughs> relax. Yeah, 
And while I'm not sure offering him hash and acid and smack is the best way to do it, I can understand the impulse to want to both pacify and perhaps anesthetize this crazed, violent madman. And yet, Devil Slayer reacts to that by again trying to kill Sunshine. I felt really bad for Sunshine in that whole interaction and was certainly not particularly kindly disposed towards Devil Slayer. One of my favorite Miss Manners columns that I've read <laughs> dealt with this topic. I don't know if I've talked with you about whoa, whoa, this whoa. before. <laughs> Which topic? The question that she was asked was, Dear Miss Manners, I am going to be attending a party later. I'm paraphrasing this, by mm -hmm. the way, but this is essentially the question. I have been invited to a party, and it's come to my attention that some of the people who are attending the party like to use drugs. If I am offered drugs, what should I do? And her response was, Good heavens, whatever happened to yes please and no thank you? <laughs> and yeah, Eric, no thank you. Yeah. You don't need to threaten to kill the person. Yeah, I, I hated Devil Slayer and the whole thing. And after he finishes terrorizing Sunshine, he <laughs> lingers in the doorframe and is just like, I'll be back. And I'll help you later. It's like, you know what? I got to say you've helped enough. <laughs> Although, I'm not letting Sunshine entirely off the hook. Because as I mentioned, his song is fucking garbage. <laughs> Was that a Invasion of the Body Snatchers reference? You know, there is something about Agnew being a pod person that was a pop culture reference that I just don't remember. Oh. Uh, I think it's a specific thing. I don't object to him referring to <laughs> Agnew as a pod person. But here's the thing. John Lennon was the walrus. Eric Clapton was God. Nixon was in power. Agnew was a pod. Now, right off the bat, okay, first of all, I'm not a huge Beatles fan, but even I know that Paul was the walrus, not Lennon. Second of all, Clapton is God? I'm sorry, if we have learned nothing else from the movie Airheads, it is that Lemmy from Motorhead is God. <laughs> the only thing that Eric Clapton and God have in common is that people who are really into both of them tend to not get along well with me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. You're on notice, Sunshine. Yeah. The other weird thing about Sunshine, I gotta say, is this book came out in 1981, and when we are introduced to Sunshine, he's wearing a t-shirt that says Woodstock, 1969. And like I said, there was that episode of the Golden Girls, and I feel like in the 80s, it was a pretty prevalent idea of these people who were stuck in the 60s. Mm -hmm. The equivalent of that now would be somebody who was stuck in 2009. Oh, I don't like those math things that do that. Yeah, I'm not crazy about them either. But it also did make me realize, I'm like, oh man, I don't think I can name off the top of my head a single piece of media that I'm pretty sure came out in 2009. Mm. How about you? Can you name a single pop culture thing from 2009? Man, I don't know why I can't. I lived through it. Yeah, I looked it up and I was like, oh, okay. That was the year Empire State of Mind came out. Oh. So, all right. But I mean, like, you're not going to catch me out on the street wearing a t-shirt that says, like, slow recovery from the collapse of the housing crisis continues. <laughs> <laughs> or like, X-Men Origins Wolverine forever. Yeah, the idea of uh, somebody being stuck in 2009 is <laughs> both alarming and kind of unfathomable. 
Well, it just it feels like it would just be like a not really noticeable thing. Yeah. If a movie was set in 2009, I don't think I would notice necessarily until like a news story came on or something. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was talking with Lisa about it earlier and I was trying to think of a 2009 thing. And I was like, um, is that the year that a lot of women were wearing like Mr. T style earrings with all the feathers? And she was like, no, nah, I think that was a few years before that. I was like, OK. Uh, yeah, that was like 2006. Um, gosh, I think the fourth Fast and the Furious movie came out that year. <laughs> and, you know, frankly, the franchise really didn't turn the corner for me until number five. So, uh, no, I don't have to worry about being in Sunshine's shoes. Well, thank goodness for that. Especially because I don't think Sunshine had any shoes. Kind of a relief. Yeah, Devil's Lair is not going to come to follow you <laughs> home and scare the shit out of you. Speaking of Devil Slayer, maybe there's something that you can help unravel for me. There is a, a thing in here where they talk about Patsy apologizing for taking Devil Slayer's cape. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that she was that green demon that popped up and scared those kids in issue 98? No, no, no. That was her cape. And that, the demon stole her cape out of her house. When they were tumbling through the weirdo dimension, Eric noticed that his cape was missing because she had swiped it from him right before they stepped into the big uh, space vagina-looking thing and fell past the Capybara youth pastor. Oh, right. So, yeah, I remembered him <laughs> not having his cape. I, I didn't remember that Patsy had swiped it. Okay. Yeah, and that's how she got to teleport to New York to kidnap Kyle and then got all Satan'd up and shit. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Kyle, he quits the team again. For what I'm pretty sure is like the seventh time in the last 11 issues. Yeah, it seemed more like a reinforcement of the previous quitting. But there's been so many reinforcements of the original quitting. He keeps telling everybody how much he's quit and then not leaving. Mm -hmm. It's like he's given like nine months notice at his job. It's like, I still really want to hang out with you guys. I just don't like working. Hey, I get it. And good for him. I don't think it's the wrong decision. But... I'll tell you what is the wrong decision hmm. is that in the opening scene, he looks like he's drinking a flaming Dr. Pepper. Mm. Did you catch that? Oh, like actually like a can of Dr. Pepper that's on fire? No, no, no. A flaming Dr. Pepper is a drink that is a shot of amaretto and 151 rum. You light it on fire and drop it in half of a uh, beer like a Pabst, and then it tastes like uh, Dr. Pepper. Oh. But if you look at him, he is holding a flaming shot glass in his hand. Yeah. And his nurse looks alarmed by that. Well, with good reason. Yeah, it's understandable. It looks like, frankly, he forgot to have the half pint of Pabst. <laughs> and so she's like, oh, no, he's going to catch his mouth on fire. Oh, he looks really put off, too. He's like, now what do I do with this thing? I love that page. Everyone is doing their own goddamn thing, and a lot of it's pretty weird. My favorite is, yes, Kyle drinking a flaming shot. Maybe it is not a flaming Dr. Pepper, which incidentally, they're a goofy ass drink and they're a pain in the butt. And I try not to let people order them at the bar because I'm worried about them chipping the glass and then getting glass shards in their mouth. But they are very tasty. But maybe it's not one of those. Maybe Kyle was just super jealous of when Son of Satan and his dad were drinking those uh, lava shots. <laughs> and he's like, well, I want a shot of lava. And his nurse is like, Kyle, no! 
You can have this baking soda and vinegar beverage. Delightful fourth grade science fair volcano, but a tiny one. <laughs> but so Kyle's doing that. Silver Surfer is doing his impression of the thinker as he sits on his surfboard like it's a chair. I really like the idea of him using that as a portable chair. Mm -hmm. Devil Slayer is looking out the window and moping, and it looks like he's trying to open the window, which, come on, it's raining pretty hard. You're going to get Steve's books all wet. He's trying to figure out how to work the blinds, you know, like when you're at a new place. Just like, this should be simple. Well, it seems a little bit excessive that Steve has both Venetian blinds and full curtains. Mm. Seems like that would be an either-or situation. Yeah, well, the guy likes his privacy. Well, that's fair. You see Patsy is curled up on the sofa bed, and we don't know that it's a sofa bed. He has a lot of guests. It's probably a sofa bed. But Patsy is curled up on the sofa, just kind of hugging herself, looking pretty sad. Gargoyle is, uh, I think, scooting his butt on the carpet as he wiggles back and forth. <laughs> I thought that he was aloft. Oh, he's just flying very low to the ground? Yeah. See, there's a shadow under him. He's like nervous. He's hovering. He's a nervous hovering conversationalist. That's very annoying. Okay. I thought maybe he had gotten into some dairy <laughs> and was scooting his butt on the carpet. It's bad for gargoyles. Hmm. And Steve is pointedly ignoring the Hulk, it looks like. I can't hear you. <laughs> it's very rude. And the Hulk is, I think, raising a pretty good point, which is, come on, guys. We are of the opinion that we saved the universe, even though we didn't. We should celebrate. Why are you guys all fucking moping and being weird and maybe scooting on the carpet and trying to drink lava? Yeah, he's not feeling it. No. And I sympathize. What did you think of the Hulk in this issue? I loved the Hulk. Like, I understand that the way that he behaved is bad. Is it? But putting it in the context of, you know, the Hulk, it is so understandable. I don't think he did anything wrong. I'm going to miss him. I wish he hadn't stormed off and quit the team. But he's been in this situation with the Defenders for so long, and it's not getting any better. I think we've both had jobs and sometimes relationships where it is unpleasant you are not enjoying yourself but you're staying in it because it's comfortable mm -hmm. even if it's unpleasant you know mm -hmm. it, it just seems well this is what i do now and the hulk isn't putting up with that he's like hey this used to be fun it's not fun anymore you guys are always sad you're never happy you're not nice to me fucking i'm leaving and you know what good for him man yeah i know at first like he's getting pissed off because everybody's moping around and, and Patsy jumps up and it's like, hey, yeah, totally, we get it. You know, sorry, that's a bummer, but, you know, here's why. Is that cool? And she's just like, fuck no. I'm out. Yeah. She is not that diplomatic about it because she yells at the Hulk for wanting to celebrate. I got, That's true. I guess she's, she's yelling at him about what they lost in the fray, Son of Satan. And then Hulk kind of puts a stop to that argument by picking her up, saying, why are you yelling? What did I do wrong? Yeah. And then she's like, oh, yeah, I was being a jerk. And then she apologizes, and he's like, yeah, well, I don't forgive you. Or she says, do you forgive me? And that is supposed to be a rhetorical question, but he's like, you know what? No, I fucking don't. Bye. Mm -hmm. And I liked that Namor's like, yeah, you know what, guys? Me too. Yeah, I gotta say, this Namor and Hulk bromance is, is growing on me. <laughs> it is for me, too. 
I did think it was funny that Namor was like, I don't normally agree with the Hulk. I was like, hey, did you just read the last issue the way that I did? Right. But yeah, he pieces out too. So we are left with a Defenders lineup at this point that I think is Steve, Clea, Gargoyle, Patsy, Devil Slayer, Valkyrie, and Silver Surfer. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I'm curious to see where they're going with this. I don't know who's going to stick around and who isn't. I don't know who's coming back and who isn't. The team is in a state of flux, and that part at least is a little bit exciting. It would be exciting to me if Devil Slayer just kept doing his own thing on his mission to heal himself. Kind of tired of him. I am too. I think he's a character who had potential and didn't really live up to it. And I thought maybe part of the problem was that I kept mixing him up first with Kyle and then with Son of Satan. But in this issue, there really isn't a Kyle or a Son of Satan, and I still don't like him. So I think that's on him at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did feel a little bit bad for him at first because... He was like, I need to figure out who I am. First, I turned to booze. Then I turned to Corey. I was like, well, those are two of my favorite things. <laughs> Different Corey. This Devil Slayer guy's all right. But then he, you know, kept talking and, you know, threatening hippies and shit. And I'm like, OK, well, you lost me, buddy. There was one part that was maybe one of my favorite parts of the comic, though. Devil Slayer's about to kill Sunshine for offering him drugs. And Sunshine basically says, you know, hey, bad shit happened. That's the way I was dealing with it. Mm -hmm. um, forgive me. But I mean, what's a freak without someone to be freaky with? And that just stops <laughs> Devil Slayer in his tracks. And he says, Indeed. Oh, I like to get freaky with freaks, too. You know, we're a lot alike, you and I, Sunshine. I'll be back. <laughs> Slam. So we talked about how condescending the comic book was towards the town of Africa. <laughs> but that wasn't the only condescension that was going on, because I thought it was pretty funny when Silver Surfer was telling Steve to, like, knock off the pity party. Saying you're only human has a really different feel when it's coming from somebody who isn't human. Mm -hmm. A lot less sympathetic and a lot more condescending. Yeah, that was that bit was fun. I thought it was also fun that basically his reproach to the rest of the defenders who were being all maudlin and whiny was, man, you guys sound like me and I suck. Road trip. <laughs> well, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutia? Well, actually, just one last thing. That's a question. It, it may come up in the minutia, but just in case not. On page 18, is that Stan Lee holding a baby? Oh, I mean, maybe? I know the sequence you're talking about. I thought it was just an old man yelling at a baby. He's putting his finger in his face. That's not how you... What's the thing, baby? That's not how you poop a diaper. <laughs> I'll show you how to poop a diaper. It really does look like he is lecturing the baby about something. But yeah, that's when the Silver Surfer is uh, taking Clea and Steve on a world tour and being like, no, there's good things in even the most backwards non-American places. Look at all the things people do that are wonderful. There's flautists and people who like Buddha and old men lecturing babies. The world is a wonderful place. Very joyful. 
And they are convinced. So they decide to hang out on the stoop of their building like they are in 227. Yep. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting off with? Hmm. You want to talk about panels? Let's do it. Corey, what was your favorite panel? I think my backup is the one that I already referenced, and it's on page 20. I call it Freaky, and it's just the close-up of Sunshine's face saying, it's not worth being a freak unless you have somebody to be freaky with. That is a pretty fun one. I generally enjoyed the art in this book. It is once again the team of Don Perlin and Joe Sinnott. There are some uncredited inks by Al Milgram in there too, but they didn't particularly stand out to me as jarring. So that was nice. I think my favorite panel, I mean, the opening page where everybody's doing their own thing is up there. I think what knocks it out of the top, top spot is the fact that you pointed out that Isaac isn't scooting on the rug. <laughs> so instead, I think I'm going to go with as my favorite a panel that I call Happy Clea, and it is the trio of Silver Surfer, Steve, and Clea flying off to the town of Africa, and she just looks super stoked to be getting out of the house. There's a very beatific smile on her face, and it's nice to see her happy. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one, too. My favorite also had Clea in it, and I guess it has to come with the disclaimer that it's part of that section with the African village that's awful. but. It's the dance in the sky scene. Yeah, it's like a Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance number that is taking place in the sky with uh, Clea and Steve. And it's nicely done. I like that kind of single panel full page montage where it's like the movement is happening, but it's not broken up by panels. Mm -hmm. It's cool looking. Yeah, it has a good sense of movement and flow. It's, it's really psychedelic and... It's kind of charming in a way if you forget the context in which it was set. Yeah, I agree. It's time for our weekly Battle of the Band Names. Last week's contest saw I Am the Thunder triumphing over the West Coast proto-punk of the flesh-eating aliens. It was a pretty toughly contested battle, but I Am the Thunder did emerge victorious with their braggadocious, self-aware garage rock. So this week, were you able to find a band name that you feel good about putting up against I Am the Thunder? Yeah, I had a couple choices. I think I do have a favorite out of them. Somehow, the band name The Cosmic Skyriders was already taken. Oh, man. The one that I noticed that was already taken, I was really excited about the idea of the Beat Devils. <laughs> and that one's taken. I thought that could have been a fun, like, uh, I don't know, Maynard G. Krebs trio of, <laughs> of instrumental hip-hop. But, nope. Dobie Gillis just stands there with his arms crossed, shaking his head. <laughs> That's not music. Dude, did you know that the Scooby-Doo gang was supposed to be the Dobie Gillis crew? You know, I always kind of connected Shaggy with Maynard, but not the, I didn't put the rest of it together. Yeah, neither did I. I've only found that out recently, but I'm like, oh, yeah. Huh. Well, there you go. Why do we even know about that? That show is not like super old. I guess there was, it was syndicated when we were kids. Yeah, 
for me at least, it was part of that weird era where I grew up without really having access to television at all. And then after my parents got divorced, my dad won a big color TV in a raffle and my grandfather got us cable and it was just like, oh, oh shit, full immersion and I have to learn about all of this stuff. And so I ended up like studying it and early cable, there just wasn't enough content out there to fill all of the channels. So everything from like the 50s and 60s and 70s was on suddenly. Mm -hmm. And so I, I uh, yeah, I ended up watching a fair amount of Dobie Gillis and a lot of Barney Miller. Oh, greatest theme song ever. It really is. Yeah, I don't have an excuse like that. I don't know why, why I know those shows. <laughs> I'm not that much older than you. You're just a big Bob Denver fan. <laughs> I guess so. I had a band name choice that was This Beleaguered World. Oh. Yeah, I'm not really sure. Like, they could be folky music, you know? Mm-hmm. But like sad folky music, like the Great Lake Swimmers or something. Yeah. Yeah, they're definitely heavy. Mm-hmm. Content-wise is heavy. Yes. I think that's a solid band name. I had trouble finding one in this. I ended up coming up with some, but there were, I feel like, a few where I looked it up and was like, God damn it, really? <laughs> <laughs> the two that I ended up coming up with, one was The Unfettered. I feel like that's pretty good. Hmm. I don't know exactly what type of music they play, but, you know, man, they just need to be free. Mm -hmm. Some kind of metal, I think, probably. I feel like those adjective band names could all, like, they could go on a bill with, like, the killers or the bravery. Something about the name Unfettered also makes me think they might be kind of like Hawkwind, you know? Ooh, there's Lemmy again. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I think that one's okay. What, what was your other one? So my other one, and I think it's my contender, is the Wretched Sons of Earth. Ooh. So like, kind of like the play on Wretched of the Earth. They are a social justice-themed grunge band. All right. <laughs> From somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, really inspired by uh, Franz Fanon's 1961 book, The Wretched of the Earth. I like that. I think that might be the choice. The other option that I had is a pop-punk band called The Little Buggers. <laughs> I think the Little Buggers is actually pretty fun. That's pretty cute. Yeah. Maybe wouldn't do as well in England. <laughs> I guess that would be if they were the Little Buggerers. Yeah. But uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that would be a pretty good like pop punk band. Gosh. I don't know, man. I just, we got a heavy social justice themed grunge versus uh, the adorable punk pop of the Little Buggers. I don't know. You have a way you're leaning on that? Let's see. So the competition is I Am the Thunder. Mm -hmm. So do you beat I Am the Thunder with grunge or with punk pop? I don't know. It seems like it could go either way. It could go either way. I mean, personally, of, of any of those, I think my favorite genre of them would be probably the garage rock. We're not going by their music, though. We're just going by their name. Mm. So we have uh, mine is heavy and yours is uh, more whimsical. Mm hmm. So do you beat heavy with heavy or heavy with light? Let's try heavy with light. All right, little buggers it is. Let's see how they fare against I Am The Thunder. You sure that's not a band name? <laughs> really, I don't know why, but it seems like it, it would be. There's one that is little bugger, but not the little buggers. Ah. And that is the phrase that actually appears in the book. Fair enough. Every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender, 
and also a worst offender. In this issue, who did you have as your, let's start with worst offender? This one may be no surprise, but I had Devil Slayer for being such a total jerk to Ira Sunshine Gross, which by the way, sounds like a real NPR <laughs> kind of host name. It does, yeah. Ira Glass, Terry Gross thing going on there. With the backup of Steve, of course, for his Noble Savage garbage. Yeah, I also had Devil Slayer as the worst. I had a slew of backups. I had Patsy as a potential backup for bringing Ike to the hospital, thus proving that the visit is about her feeling better, not about the person she's visiting. I had Steve for the aforementioned reasons, and I had the surfer for a couple of reasons, the main one being... I know you like these people, but you don't just swoop down, pick up a baby, and run with it. <laughs> like, when he first shows up, one of the first thing he does is, oh, I'm going to swoop down on my surfboard, pick up a couple of toddlers, one under each arm, and fly around in the sky with them. I'm like, dude! The kids looked happy. Yeah, I guess. They're not showing their parents, though. <laughs> but ultimately, I did decide to go with Devil Slayer. What a fucknut. Offense intended. Sorry, shout out to our competitors there, uh, Ted and Gary. Yeah, I'm not giving them a shout out. Fuck those guys. They know what they did. This place was in fucking shambles after they finished in here. Okay. Had to deal with a talking horse. Every time. I guess the horse didn't talk. <laughs> Dr. Ed. <laughs> not <laughs> Mr. Ed, okay? Whoops. Conversely, who did you have as the best defender? Yeah, you will probably take a little issue with this, and gosh, I'm kind of second-guessing myself now that you pointed out the Patsy brought Gargoyle to visit at the hospital. Um, I guess the mitigating factor is uh, maybe she was so distraught she didn't think it through, but again, that's I guess she's thinking about herself, so that's not great. Maybe mm -hmm. it's that his disguise was so impenetrable, as <laughs> disguises work in the Marvel Universe, that she thought that wouldn't re-traumatize Dottie. I don't know. But the thing about Patsy that I appreciated in this issue was this idea of her forgiving herself and others, and that being a really powerful thing that she could do, something that I don't think I could do. Hmm. I would still be mad at Gargoyle for everything he did. Yeah. But she found peace that way, you know? I think the tack that she was taking was just like, shit, I got Satan'd up and I couldn't control myself. Maybe Satan was fucking with you, too. I was pretty, pretty bummed about Patsy in this for the most part, though. I decided to go with the Hulk. He wasn't a defender for very much of the issue before quitting, but he recognized that he was in a bad situation and got out of it. He saw that what he was doing wasn't making him happy, and so he changed something. And that can be really difficult to do. So I had Hulk as my best defender. Yeah, good choice. I really appreciated the Hulk in this one. Yeah, as a backup, I had Valkyrie. She was a very good friend to Patsy and was just very supportive of her. And I did enjoy one of the things I liked about this issue was the deepening of their friendship and the focus on their bond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Val was great in this one. What was your favorite sound effect in the issue? There wasn't a huge amount of them to choose from. We were just talking about how great the Hulk was. I liked when Patsy said, do you forgive me? And he said, it's kind of a two-part sound effect, and it's him going, no. And then boom, boom. <laughs> it's the noise it makes when she pushes her 
onto the couch. Boomp is pretty nice, and I think it's only one of two sound effects. I think the only other one we get is Devil Slayer slamming a door in Sunshine's apartment makes the noise slam. Mm-hmm. So of slam and boomp, I guess I'll take boomp too. Yep, it's a cuter noise for sure. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you find most noteworthy? I guess Gargoyle's less ostentatious garb. I mean, yeah, it's less ostentatious because it's not that weird bondage stuff, but still, (laughs) he looks kind of like Orko. (laughs) He does, with, yeah, the scarf wrapped all the way around his face like that, Yeah, topped with a hat. Unlike Orko, I don't hate Gargoyle, so that's nice. I already mentioned some of Sunshine's apparel. He is wearing a ratty t-shirt that says Woodstock 1969. Nice. He also is wearing some frayed jeans. He's not wearing shoes. He's got a hoop earring. He has long hair and is balding. And he's got a polka dot patch on his jeans. I won't say it's a good look, but it is one that tells you a lot about his character right away. It is a look. In the same panel as he makes his appearance, there is a woman carrying a nice floral umbrella who is dressed the way that Patsy dressed when she went to the cemetery, which is a short trench coat and possibly nothing else. (laughs) If you look closely, she is carrying a big bag of something that presumably she just bought at the self-help store. (laughs) So... I don't know. Hopefully one of those books is how to put on clothes before going to a cemetery. Yep. I'm just going to read that right after Dianetics. We talked a little bit about Serena's dress. It is a big, very poofy dress that this little girl is wearing in the hospital. It kind of reminds me of my grandmother used to have one of those, like, toilet paper cozies. Do you know those things? Mm. Where it's like a Barbie doll, and then, like, there's a crocheted dress that she's wearing, and you put it over your spare roll of toilet paper so that nobody knows that you poop. (laughs) A crocheted toilet paper cover? Yeah, but that has, like, a doll sticking out of the top so that it looks like the doll is just wearing a big dress that poofs out at the bottom. No, I somehow missed that. I thought maybe that was just a thing that grandmothers had. (laughs) It, It could be. I don't know. I mean... I had a sample size of two that I was working with. One of them did, one of them didn't. So, yeah. I also noticed that uh, Dolly Donahue has a lot of petticoats for her convalescing outfit. Hmm. Seems like she's got at least a couple of slips that she's wearing under her full dress that she is wearing in the hospital. So, good for her, I guess. Yeah. Layering. Mm-hmm. Drafty hospital. Mm-hmm. I also made note of the kid on the bus that we already talked about who is kind of messing with Gargoyle. There's mm-hmm. a panel in which he's leaning over the back of the seat to talk to Gargoyle, and he's got a comic book rolled up in his back pocket. Uh-huh. It looks a little bit like it says Richie Rich on the cover. Did you have a guess about what he was reading on the bus? I think it's Ghost Rider. Uh... I thought Richie Rich at first, too, just from the second word being R-I, but I think the first letter is a G. And I think that would make more sense. Oh, okay. That kid's cooler than I thought. He's a pretty cool kid. Corey, it's time for us to ask ourselves the difficult questions. 
questions like, Behold! Or, Be gone! In the opening panel, we see that Kyle is drinking possibly a shot of lava, but more likely a flaming Dr. Pepper shot. Corey, Behold or Be Gone dropped shots. So if I behold them, that means I have I can have them, but I don't have to have them exclusively? Yeah. Let's say you can drink other things, but you have to have at least one dropped shot a month. And if I be gone, it means no more ever? Yes. Oh, that's a behold for me. All right. We've had some, we've had some good times with the... What was that one Jaeger bombs? Jaeger bombs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're a drink that I don't want to like, but damn it, it is a fun time. You do get that dynamic tension between the stimulant and the depressant. Yeah. I don't think I have ever had Jaegermeister without Red Bull, and I also don't think I have ever had Red Bull without Jaegermeister, and I have no interest in either one. Same. I mean, I definitely have had Jaegermeister on its own, and it's a lot more fun dropped into a pint of uh, energy <laughs> beverage. The problem is, like I said, you worry about chipping the glass. Like, you could do some pretty serious damage to your internal system or to your teeth, too. Like, trying to take the shot, you could also just, like, drop the shot into your face. That, that's why we kind of tried to discourage them at the bar. You're not worried about that? I would say with the infrequency with which I indulge, that probably mitigates the risk. Okay. What's your favorite drop shot? I think that is the only one I know of other than the, the whiskey and the, like the Irish whiskey and the dark beer. Right. The offensively named Irish beverage. I wasn't going to, yeah, say the name. That's why I was dancing around the... Un understandably so. Those are delicious. But yeah, you can't order those. Nope. Yeah, see, those are good. The Flaming Dr. Pepper, as I said, is a very tasty drink, which also it introduces the added element of danger in fire to the drink. <laughs> you have to be very careful with those. And it's important, I think, that ideally you would use a plastic pint glass with any of these. Mm. The only other one I'm familiar with is one that I invented myself that I called the Torque Bomb inspired by the movie Torque. Oh. It is a shot of fireball dropped into a <laughs> half pint of Mountain Dew with one ice cube. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah, it's not a particularly good drink, but I still do kind of love it. Yeah. Wow. God, I love the movie Torque. It makes you want to go do nose wheelies on a motorcycle on a train. It makes me want to drive so fast past other cars that they explode and catch on fire. That's pretty fast. Or maybe have a big kung fu fight with somebody on top of my motorcycle in front of a Mountain Dew billboard. That's so extreme. Man. What's your uh, vote? Yeah, so I, I mean... Come on. I, I want to have the torque bombs continue to exist. <laughs> Who am I to judge? What's a few chipped teeth and uh, torn esophaguses? You are the biggest. I have a distinct memory of like really resisting the Jaeger bomb and you being very persuasive about that's what we should do. Sorry. It's okay. It's good times after all. Mm -hmm. Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, if it were not made out of steel? Yeah, there was this panel, and it was just amazing, where the character Sunshine is singing this song. <laughs> just kidding. So, 
I liked a fair amount of the dialogue in here. I think ultimately I would probably go with a bit of exposition that was was just evocative of a big city. Car horns blare, exhaust fumes snake off into an already polluted sky, and a crowded commuter bus inches its way into the Holland Tunnel. I liked that too. I had a couple of choices that went in a couple of different directions. There were a couple of shorter, kind of funnier bits that I liked, and then there was a longer, pretty well-done exposition. And you were joking about it, but it's not the song that Sunshine is singing, but it is the exposition that sets the scene for Sunshine's appearance on that page. I thought that was actually really well done. Payne pays no further attention to the stupefied passerby. Face an impassive slate. He walks, unmindful of the elements, across cobbled streets, past curio shops and record stores, Indian restaurants and gypsy tea rooms. His thoughts as turbulent as the worsening downpour, his soul singing a song as desultory as the one shakily crooned by this pathetic-looking street singer. And then Sunshine sings about how fucking great Eric Clapton is. (laughs) Boo! The other dialogue that I really liked was a really short snippet. It's from the kid with what I think is the Ghost Rider comic in his back pocket. He sees Gargoyle on the bus and he says, H Dex 9 to X10, come in X10. I just thought that was like some fun spy shit. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, pretty cool. And it turns out Agent X9 is a long running syndicated secret agent comic strip that was actually uh, started by Dashiell Hammett. No shit. Yeah, which is pretty cool. And I think Alex Raymond did the art. I'm not sure about that. Hmm. But yeah, Agent X9 to X10. I just thought that was pretty fun. That was fun. Gargoyle wasn't feeling it, but I thought it was fun. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. In this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? Yeah, I had a two-parter because I couldn't just pick one. So the first one was don't take saris just because you feel like you're supposed to take saris, especially if they're rhetorical. Mm. And if you're not feeling it, split, you know? So that was like part one. So don't take false saris and leave okay. um, if that feels right. And then the second one was also from something that you mentioned where uh, Silver Surfer says, melodramatic words of self-pity are not wise and they don't sound any better coming from other people Mm, than they did from me when i spent the majority of my comic book career saying them at myself between getting so coked up i had to (laughs) surf like way too high up into the atmosphere oh yeah 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 he got so coked up that he (laughs) that he just repeatedly slammed into the invisible barrier around the earth like he was a fucking pigeon flying into a patio door yeah yeah don't do that. That's not the Hulk's rules. It's don't wallow in self-pity and uh, don't take false apologies. Well, Corey, those are both very good Hulk's rules. I had the Hulk's rule being one Hulk's rule per person. Corey, stop being a rule hog. Okay. That's, uh... Taking two rules. Come on. I had one of them, but mine was just the apology one. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, I had the Hulk's rule being... Um, just because someone apologizes doesn't mean you need to forgive them. But, you know, you covered that and then you, you took another one uh, to boot. So the Hulk's rule is, Corey, don't be a rule hog. 
Those are for everybody. Hey, we can both observe. Oh, it's it's not my rule, Corey. It's the Hulk's rule. Uh-huh. I'll think about it. Well, those are the Hulk's rules. Corey, I have just one further question I have to ask you, and that is as follows. In the year of our Lord, 1981, and the month of our Lord, November, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Hmm. So Wong and Steve had gone on an information gathering trip to Japan. They were in Nagashima, Japan, early in the month, around November 12th. And Wong was fed up with Steve constantly asking him to translate everything. Wong doesn't speak Japanese. And was like, man, I'm so tired of this. I'm going to play a joke on Steve to make myself feel a little better. So they found a local pub. Eagle-brained listeners will remember in the last Wong doings that Steve had gotten all liquored up on Brandy Alexander's and accidentally went on a hot air balloon trip. Mm-hmm. And so Wong thought to himself, ha, I'm going to fool him into getting into a hot air balloon basket and then he's going to wake up and oh, he's going to be so scared and that'll be a good joke. So, ah, oh, geez, really going B.A. Baracus on him. Yep. You know, they got into the Brandy Alexander's and sure enough, on the swerving walk back to where they're staying, Wong's like, oh, Steve, let's go play hide and seek in that airfield. <laughs> And wouldn't you know it, Steve found a balloon basket and crawled right in, just like last time, and promptly passed out. And Wong's like, oh, shit, okay, I shouldn't just leave him there, because, you know, he'll probably wind up somewhere over the ocean like last time. So Wong crawled in, too, but unfortunately, he had also been, you know, kind of trying to keep pace with Steve on the Brandy Alexanders, and he, he nodded off as well. So needless to say, they were very surprised. As were pilots Ben Abruzzo, Larry Newman, Ron Clark, and uh, Rocky Aoki, when two very confused people jumped up in the basket in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in this balloon, which uh, coincidentally was named the Double Eagle Five. That's a lot of eagles. Yeah, well, there was a few iterations, I guess, that didn't quite go so well. And, you know, needless to say, Steve was pretty freaked out. And as soon as he saw land approaching, he did his best to like call a gust of wind to, you know, urge them towards the shore. But uh, he was too scared to teleport, just like on the last trip. Mm. Uh, he ended up calling a storm and they crash landed. Oh, geez. Nobody was hurt, which is good. And that's why on November 10th, 1981, the Double Eagle Five landed in the uh, Mendocino forest in California after 84 hours and 31 minutes of flight, 5,768 miles from Japan to California. And to this day, whenever Steve is doing something that Wong thinks is dumb, he calls it a double eagle. Oh, very nice. Well, that is one thing that Wong and Steve were up to in November of 1981, but it wasn't the only thing. See, after their struggles with the Six-Fingered Hand and the League of Substitute Satans, Steve was being a little bit extra vigilant and trying to make sure that the Six-Fingered Hand didn't crop up somewhere else. They'd been shrunk down to be tiny, but after that, Steve and the gang got distracted and just kind of lost track of them. So he was really keeping his eyes peeled and looking everywhere for signs that the Six-Fingered Hand might strike somewhere again. And he thought he had found it. Wong came home one afternoon, and Steve was looking very, very frantic. 
and was like, Wong, Wong, I've been perusing your uh, Rolodex of strange iconography, and I think I've found a clue. <laughs> and Wong is like, Steve, those are my baseball cards. What are you doing with my baseball cards? And Steve's like, oh, baseball. I should have known. Yes, last month when I attended that baseball game and everyone refused to give me a standing ovation, I should have known that there was something sinister afoot in that sport. Hmm. Wong, what can you tell me about this man? He has a picture of a hand on his hat, and his last name is Fingers. Seems to me as though he is likely in league with the six-fingered hand. And Wong is like, no, that's that's Raleigh Fingers. He's he's a relief pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers. The Brewers have a baseball mitt on their hat. That's all that is. And he's like, hmm, would you say that he's the star pitcher of this team? And Wong's like, well, I mean, yeah, kind of, actually. He, he's He's really good. He's not a starting pitcher. He's a relief pitcher. And Steve just immediately is like, oh, well, then never mind. He's clearly beneath the six-fingered hand's notice. We don't need to worry about him. Wong's like, well, I mean, no, I don't think he is a member of the hand, but what are you talking about? He's like, well, if he's just a helper-outer-ball-throw man, then there's no need to really focus on him. He's, I'm sure he's very good at his job, but he's like you, Wong. He's not really the star of the show. <laughs> and that didn't sit particularly well with Wong. He's like, oh, really? Yeah, support positions are not important. Oh, okay, good to know, Steve. So not only did Wong stop helping out around the house, stop doing all of the things that he normally did for Steve that allowed Steve to do his Steve shit, he also started calling up his contacts within the world of professional sports. And that is why on November 25th, 1981, Raleigh Fingers was named the American League MVP the first relief pitcher to ever be granted that title. <laughs> and Wong showed that to Steve, and Steve was like, mm, yes, perhaps I misjudged the importance of this fingers man. He does have a very nice mustache. <laughs> also, I'm sorry, Wong. Now, can you please tell me where my pants are? And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in November of 1981. Nice. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us. We will be back next week to find out what's up in the new Teen Titans and what our best friend in the world, Danny Chase, is doing. Oh, good. In the meantime, if you'd like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. You can also find us up in uh, the socials media. We'll be in there on your Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr and Instagram and, you know, all the fun internet places that are not at all a garbage nightmare. We'll be there. And if you can't find us there, there's one more place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? Probably trying to figure out which one of the Beatles was really the walrus. It was Paul, Corey. It was Paul. That's why people thought he was dead. Because he was a walrus, and one time he didn't wear shoes. What other conclusion could there be? I don't know. I'm going to talk to my man Sunshine and uh, sort it out. 
All right. Well, I am going to be fanning myself and dabbing sweat off my brow like a southern senator in a stage play saying, powerful warm, powerful warm, because it's going to be powerful warm. If you'd like to support the show, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you'll get access to all kinds of bonus material. There's the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with the W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That is the Howard the Duck podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. That is also where you will be able to find, I think fairly soon, the next wrestling fan tighten up the defense crossover where Megan Bob and I talk about Scooby-Doo and the WWE in Curse of the Speed Demon. That one should be a lot of fun. And there's also just a ton of other podcasts and video reviews of classic comic books that I've made. There's a lot of stuff on the Patreon site that is all exclusively available to our donors. So if you like checking that out and kicking us down a few dollars, I would really appreciate that. Thank you. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, Corey, what's a way people can do that? Well, two main ways are telling people about the show so Mm -hmm. that they can find it. And then another way is to leave a review for the show wherever you uh, get your podcast. Okay, I have some follow-up questions, Corey. By telling people about the show, do you mean threatening them with a sword and following them to their apartment and uh, trying to kill them? No, I don't. Don't be like Devil Slayer. Okay. Be more like Ira Sunshine Gross. Sit on the sidewalk and (laughs) strum your guitar and sing a song. I think that's a great idea. If you want to sing a song about how great Tighten Up the Defense is, you know, just do some busking. I think it'll help make you some money. And yeah, if you would like to uh, perform a song about how great we are, why not send it in? I I would love to hear it. (laughs) Make sure, if you do, that you do not talk about the fact that Corey likes to eat farts. He's very sensitive about it. And uh, also, Hub's really sensitive about Eric Clapton being God, so... Honestly, that whole thing is bullshit. Like, I don't So is the Corey eating farts thing. Okay, (laughs) okay. It's never me. I know. The whole point was that you refused to be a gentleman and eat up your farts the way a gentleman I was a... Yeah, it's the opposite. I know. And you don't want the false praise that is being lavished upon you uh, for eating farts like a gentleman. It makes me uncomfortable. It's stolen valor. I see why it would make you uncomfortable. Much like Eric Clapton should be uncomfortable when he is praised as being a great guitar player. Mm -hmm. He's fine. What would be an example of a review people could maybe leave for us? Better than Eric Clapton's blues guitar playing? Wow, really damning us with faint praise. I like it. Five stars. <laughs> yeah. You could say, this is a nice podcast. I enjoyed it. The hosts were funny. And um, five stars. I think that would be a very nice thing to say. I mean, it's a little if stilted. You, and if you do, our word is our bond. We will never hurt you. Hub. Oh, I'm sorry. Come on. I'm sorry. You're right. Until <sighs> next week, remember... Paul was the walrus, which was how you knew that he was dead. It was that and the fact that he didn't have shoes on the cover of Abbey Road. How else do you announce that somebody has passed on? Bye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) And they knew it.
what did they say? One love? No. That's what they say about that. <laughs> That's like a tennis match thing. I mean, not like the Bob Marley way. Oh, okay. Uh, well, there's not a one love. It would be 15 love. Like, love means nothing. So it would be a deuce, I think, if we're tied up is what you'd be going for. Or 15 all, perhaps. Oh, love is like zero? Yep. Hmm. I know. It's a profound statement. <laughs> tennis. For gods. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because a zero looks like a hug. Oh. I always thought that the zeros were kisses and the X's were hugs. No, no, no. The X's are kisses. The zeros are hugs. That doesn't make sense, though, because pursed lips look more like a zero and, and arms crossing look more like an X. I think it's arms encircling. So, like, there's a camera looking down at the top of your heads? Yeah. That's... And I, it had never occurred to me that it might be the other way. I don't know. I thought about it a little bit, and that was where I landed on it. So I don't well, know. I think that's why, like triple X, that's like three kisses. That's as horny as you can get. No, that's because the X is the last letter in the word sex. What? That's why they do that. That's not why, they... man. There's definitely not a lot of hugging in porn. So yeah, there kind of is. Oh. There's a, probably more hugging than there is kissing. Mm. I'm not, I guess, a, like a connoisseur, but I don't know if I'd call that hugging. I mean, it's kind of hugging. It's a special hug. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I, I guess I should watch more kissing porn. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> not with the softcore special hug stuff. Time to get to hardcore kissing action. That's right. All right. Two things had never occurred to me, that it might be that the O is the kiss instead of the hug, and that it's rated X because that's the last letter in sex. Hmm. You just so, always thought it was because it was like, there's three kisses in this movie? I don't know. Like, it just sounds tough. Like, <laughs> like Vin Diesel. <laughs> well, okay, the rating came before the Vin Diesel. 